morning once again, Jude, verses 3 and 4. Would you hear with me the word of God? Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, help us to hear from heaven today. Remind us in this book that is about the church that you are behind it all. You are the goal of the church. God, it's, it's not our glory, it is yours Help us, God, to exalt you this morning in the hearing of your word and the application of it to our lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we, we dove into the book of Jude uh, in a new series that we are calling Contend. I, I like to call it a fiery little epistle because it's, it's, it's got some heat in it. Jude doesn't pull any punches. Uh, he recognizes that he's in a battle and he begins this letter by establishing the basis of our confidence. Last week we talked about the fact that the true church of God has been called by God. They are therefore those who are loved in the Father and kept by Jesus Christ regardless of what the secret invaders want to say about the church and about the gospel. So there's no reason to fear. In verses 1 and 2, Jude tells us he's establishing the baseline that if you're really in Christ, there's no reason to fear going to fight for the faith of Christ. The faith by which you receive the gospel is worthy of your defense. And so if you, if you missed last week, you're, you're now caught up to speed. Uh, we're in Christ, we're beloved in the Father, and these invaders who want to undermine the, the love in the church and the sense that you are loved by God, they are not uh, on team Jesus. And therefore, you can have confidence when you contend for the faith. So to contend for the faith, we've got to know who we are in Christ and what we have from Christ. And now this week we see that to contend for the faith, we've got to understand that contending for the faith is necessary and urgent. Secondly, we've got to know the one faith that the people of God must believe. We've got to know what faith we're talking about. There's all kinds of faith out there, but this is the faith. And thirdly, we must know how God impacts the lives of those who truly have this faith. Those who've truly been changed by the faith. So first, we've got to understand that contending for the faith is necessary and urgent. Jude begins in verse 3, after his greeting in 1 and 2, we're, we're now getting into the body of the letter in verse 3, and Jude begins in a, in a strange way. He says, this isn't the letter I was going to write to you. I was really trying to write you a different letter. And it was going to be about our common salvation. Hey, Tom and Fred, isn't it great that we love Jesus? It's been a while, but I just wanted to tell you that you're loved in the Father and you're loved in Christ, and that's wonderful and that's great. Sincerely, Jude. If Jude had written that letter, we probably would not have it, right? Just, just a letter between a church planter and his church. But instead... The Holy Spirit of God impresses upon him, verse 3, the necessity of writing a different 
letter. I'm so glad the Spirit did that. The word necessity conveys urgency and compulsion. What we have here in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, is a picture of the divine inspiration of God's Word. I was going to do something, but the Spirit interrupted my life and caused me to do something else. As Peter writes, know this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what's happening right here in the book of Jude. This is why in Sunday school we don't ask our students, what does this passage mean to you? Because it doesn't really matter what the passage means to you. The question is, what does the passage mean? Now, we might say, how does this passage apply to your life right now? And that's a different question. But the text means what it's always meant, because no interpretation is a matter of one's opinion. It's what God wrote, and what God wrote is what God meant. The letter, then, about their common salvation has to wait, because the Spirit is inspiring us, the Spirit is inspiring Jude, rather, to tell us the faith doesn't need any more inspiration. In other words, the faith that was given to the church 2,000 years ago is the faith upon which the church still stands and must stand. And if you tinker with the faith, you don't have the faith. So this letter about their common salvation must wait because the source of their common salvation is under attack. So Jude changes course and he writes this urgent appeal. Do you see the word appealing there? Appealing means begging Uh, pleading, Jude says that he was compelled to write and he keeps on appealing. Not just I'm going to make a quick little appeal, the word is in the present continuative sense. In other words, I keep on appealing. It's It's like Jude is saying, with this letter, to the people of God in every age, down through the ages, I'm making an ongoing appeal. Contend for the faith. It's necessary. It's urgent. Getting the faith right and never giving up to those who want to tear it apart isn't just a good idea, it is the foundation for everything. How is it that schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Columbia and Brown and the University of Chicago, all of which were founded by people who wanted to train ministers of the gospel, how is it that those schools now stand as bastions of the intellectual elite which is opposed to the gospel. Somewhere along the way, enough Christians in those institutions rolled over and gave up the fight. you got to contend for the faith. And if that happened at schools that were founded to proclaim the glorious excellencies of Christ Jesus, then we should not be surprised that our children, day after day, face a tremendous battle in their schools. John Dewey, one of the leading founders... Uh, and thinkers at the turn of the last century in the overhaul of public education said this, there is no God and there is no soul. Hence there's no need for the props of traditional religion with dogma and creed excluded. Just throw away the faith. Then immutable truth is dead and buried. There's no room for fixed and natural law or permanent moral absolutes. He's absolutely true. There's no absolute truth, which makes no sense, by the way, because that's an absolute. 
On this Mother's Day, children urgently need parents and guardians and influencers who are as excited when they memorize Scripture and they come ready on Wednesday night with their Scripture memorized as they are when their kids make the big play. We need parents who are as concerned about their children missing two weeks in a row of church as they are when they miss two days of school. We contend by caring more that our children be men and women of God than that they win the gold. We also contend by understanding, church, that God has definitively spoken on what it means to be a man of God or a woman of God. There's a presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg, who says, look, I'm a faithful Christian and I'm a faithful part of the LGBTQ plus community and that's a difficult thing sometimes, but to me, he says... The core of faith is regard for one another. No, the core of the faith is the glory of King Jesus. You see, you cannot follow King Jesus and be defiantly, unapologetically, consistently, and unrepentantly sinning. And you certainly can't change the plain meaning of the Bible to justify your sin and say that you belong to Christ. It just isn't possible, church. We have to say that in 2019. That might be a faith, but it isn't the faith once and for all delivered to the saints through which sinners is saved. And if we grant that that is faith, then we're letting people die and perish and surrender and go to a hell against their sin without telling them the truth. We've got to be the place that stands for the truth in a world that doesn't want the truth. Of course, we should not pick just on one issue. We've got to contend for the faith in all sorts of ways. By prizing our marriages, even in tough times. Staying in it. By having true joy, even in difficult circumstances. We need to be the people who show the light of Jesus on our faces that the faith once delivered to us is producing within. But we cannot be silent where the world is so wrongly loud. Of course, Jude is primarily concerned not with the world, but rather with worldly people who have infiltrated the church. But make no mistake about it, you can watch CNN, Fox News, any of the popular pastors of our day with large followings, and most of them, when the world asks them the question about human sexuality, they take a pass. They don't want to answer the question. The pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City was recently asked about his view on it. He said, well, I just don't want to talk about that here. If the church won't make a stand in the public marketplace, then eventually they will not stand at all. Secondly, we've got to know the one faith that the people of God must believe. We've got to know the one faith that the people of God must believe. We've got to defend it and guard it and steward it. The word contend occurs in Greek literature in both military and athletic contexts. It means to fight or to struggle with intense effort. Jude urges us to keep on fighting, keep on contending, keep on striving for the faith. We often talk about fighting against the forces of darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness, Ephesians 6.12, and we should. And one way that we do that is what? Prayer. 
We talk about prayer, and that's a way to wage war. But another way to wage war against the spiritual forces of darkness is to fight for the force of light. And that's the faith of God delivered once for all to the saints in the world. We've got to make a stand for the faith. We should not be like the watchman in Ezekiel 33.6 who failed to warn others. Ezekiel says, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. We don't want to be a church that's got blood on our hands because we failed to contend for the faith. We must tell others there's only one faith by which you may be saved. If you never have to contend for the faith, by the way, You say, well, I I don't see the big deal. I have no issues whatsoever with the faith that I hold dear. Then maybe you only have a faith that pretends to offer salvation. Because the faith that we have is offensive to a world that wants to make it about themselves. Jude is not writing about just any old faith. He's writing literally the once delivered to the saints faith. If you were to follow it in the Greek text and translate it word for word, Jude says, the faith that you have is the once delivered to the saints faith. That's the kind of faith you have. It's the unchanging faith by which the unchanging God calls His people into His unchanging salvation offered only and exclusively through Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of the Father who, guess what, never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 5, there is one faith. Back in February, the United Methodist Church held a vote about whether they would leave it up to congregations to embrace homosexuality or to reject it. And if the vote had been left up to Methodists living in the United States, then homosexuality would have been mainstreamed in the United Methodist Church. Fortunately, across the world, the United Methodist Church is doing quite well in places like Africa and the Middle East. And in those places, they have no tolerance for a version of Christianity that rejects the clear meaning of the Bible. And they showed up to the conference. And they said, we're not going to stand for that. And because they took that stand, the United Methodist Church, praise God, is to date on a narrow vote, but a vote nonetheless in favor of upholding the truth of God's Word. We thank God for that. But not every Methodist in America is. William H. Williman, a retired UMC bishop and professor down at Duke Divinity School, said this after the vote. This feels like one generation locking down the church for the next. That is a death sentence. He's half right. It is one generation locking down another. And that generation that has locked us down is the generation of the apostles who walked with and saw the risen King of Kings through whom the Spirit of God has given a final and complete and authoritative word by speaking in these last days through His Son, Hebrews 1.1. We are locked down, Jude 3. But praise God, we're locked down because it's the locked down faith that leads to life. It's all other faiths that lead to death. 
If you tinker with the faith, it brings death. If you don't believe me, just ask Boeing who tinkered with their software. Now they got planes diving out of the sky. It was just a tweak. We don't need to go back through the regulatory process and make sure that we check all the boxes before we do this. We'll just make a little change. One little change to the faith can condemn someone eternity to eternal damnation in hell. Jude says the faith is settled. It is delivered once. Moeller summarizes Jude's point in this way. Real Christianity is Christianity that rests on truth. It is a faith of definite beliefs cherished by believers throughout the ages once for all given to the church. What is given to the church in the teaching of the apostles is what the true church of God has been and will be built upon until Christ returns. Christ doesn't change and the truth that reveals the unchanging Christ does not change. And do you see there in verse 3 that the faith is entrusted to or delivered to or handed to the saints, plural? You never see the Bible telling us that the faith was handed to a saint to then tweak and modify and make it his own. The, saint is, the, the faith is given to a community and the community must steward the faith. That's a check against us going our own way and saying, well, I've got the priesthood of the believer and I can just go over here and make up my own thing. That's not in the scripture. It's not the priesthood of the believer singular. It's the priesthood of all believers plural. That's the doctrine. And the saints together hold the faith and they check one another and they make sure they're accountable to this faith. We've been set apart from the world and for God. And one of the ways we serve God is by guarding the faith. We must preserve and protect and defend the most holy faith because it is the only message that God uses to change sinners into saints. So what's the faith? Much could be said, but for the sake of time, I'm going to hurry through 12 non-negotiables of the faith. 12 non-negotiables of the faith. Please don't write. You can reference this sermon later on uh, our podcast or on Facebook. Uh, I'm just, just listen. Just take it in. Twelve non-negotiables of the faith. First, the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scripture. If you can take homosexuality out, you can take anything out. God's Word is perfect and rightly interpreted. It will not lead you astray. Second, the full and eternal deity of Christ. Because if Jesus isn't the fullness of God offered for you, then salvation is not by grace. Because grace has to be a gift that was God's to give. He didn't just go take somebody and substitute him for you. He substituted himself for you. Which means salvation is by grace. Thirdly, the miraculous virgin birth and sinless life of Jesus. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he was born in Adam's sin, and we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Fourth, the historical creation of man and woman made in God's image. He didn't adopt a human being and call him Adam and Eve, because Romans 5 won't allow it. Sin comes through Adam, the real Adam, not some guy just made up years ago. Number five, the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. Number six, the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Number seven, the sinfulness of all human persons. Number eight, the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. Number nine, the bodily resurrection of Christ from 
the grave. When we say that we will walk streets of gold, we mean it literally. We will have literal feet. We will have literal hands. We will have literal eyes. And we will behold our risen King. Number 10, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Number 11, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the hope for sinners. And number 12, the bodily return of Jesus Christ and the assignment of all people either to eternal blessedness in the new heavens and earth or eternal condemnation in hell. These 12 things we must affirm. This is a pretty good summary of the faith, the only faith that saves. The idea that there are many paths or many faiths leading to the same God may make us feel good, but it isn't true. And it will never make us right with the one true God. There's only one faith that can do that. Church, Jude, Jude has told us there is the faith that has been definitively and authoritatively delivered to us. And we must fight for it. How? By what we sing. We don't sing just any Christian song that's on the radio. We actually think about if the lyrics are an accurate reflection of the truths that we just declared. By what we pray. By staying engaged with what our children are taught at school. By the questions we ask of one another. By what we expect of one another. By being faithful in our attendance at church and listening to the message and getting plugged into a Sunday school class. By how we parent by how we respond to the world, by knowing the faith so well that we recognize when secret invaders threaten to lead us astray. Which means, thirdly, we need to know not just the truth, not just the doctrine, not just the facts of the faith, which are important enough, but we also need to know how this faith when it is genuinely implied to someone's life, how it impacts their life. We need to know how God impacts the lives of those who truly have the faith. This is the primary point of verse 4. In verse 3, Jude tells us what he wants us to do. Contend. And then in verse 4, he tells us why he wants us to do it. Look at verse 4. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So the church has to fight because intruders had entered into the church and threatened the purity of its faith. Don't, don't miss how they entered, right, church? They, they crept in. The word to creep in means to enter by stealth. It means to enter secretly and and they weren't playing games. You know, sometimes you might just creep in because you're having a little fun. I, I remember when I was growing up, we had, we, we had this, this house that was, um, you know, back built in the 70s when you put a wall up for no reason, right? They, they, they didn't understand open spaces. And by the time we bought the house, somebody had realized, you know, the dining room's right beside the kitchen and we have this wall here that makes no sense. Why don't we just knock it down? And so they had knocked it down and we bought the house and they had put this plastic faux beam up between the two walls rather than patching it over and, and actually making it look like one uniform wall. They had this faux beam up there hiding all the wires and stuff that ran between the two walls. And my mom, beautiful lady, wonderful woman, put up with so much. She'd be there at the sink washing dishes or getting things ready for the dishwasher. And I would... 
and I would run and get as close to that beam as I could, and she would not hear a thing, and I would jump up, and bam! And I love doing that to my mom. She would jump out of her skin, and every time she turned around and she went, and she gave me that smile that said, I can't stand you, and I love you all at the same time. And one day, you're not going to be at my house to do that anymore, and I'm going to miss it. So occasionally, when I go over there, to this day, I try to catch her off guard, and hammer that beam just as loud as I can. Unfortunately, I can't do it anymore because they recently fixed it. So you got you just got to smack the wall. But uh, creeping is not always bad, but it's bad when you got bad motives. And these intruders aren't just having a little fun. They aren't just playing games. They want to take the life-giving power of the faith out of the faith. They're sneaky like their father Satan who is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44, who deceived Eve, how? By his craftiness, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, who even disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. They want to rob the church of the faith that leads to life. And Jude wants us to know God has not been caught by surprise. That category of people that gets close to the things of God, that gets around the faith, but they never actually receive it, and then they manipulate it and twist it in order to try and take down the people of the faith, they have already been marked out for condemnation, verse 4. In other words, they've already been written about in the Old Testament. Later we'll see that even the apostles predicted this. They are going the way of judgment. Hebrews 10.26 tells us about these people. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is not people who knew the truth in an experiential way. That's not the Greek word that's used here. He's talking about people who had a head knowledge of the faith, but they never got it into the heart, and then they twist it, and they try to come against the church. Guess what? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And because the intruders mimic Satan's deception, and they are wolves wearing sheep's clothing. We've got to look more than at the surface level appearances. We've got to look at their lives. You see, church, right doctrine is very important. But doctrine that does not lead to right living is only a ruse. The intruders are ungodly. And as Schreiner writes, to be godless or ungodly is to commit the fundamental sin because it means living without reckoning with God. They don't have any room for authority in their lives. It doesn't mean they don't mention God or even seem to pray to God. It means they have no awe for God. It means they have no respect for the local church. It means they are presumptive about God. When you asked them the last time that they sinned and were overwhelmed by God's grace, they have nothing to say because their faith is not about God but themselves. A pastor once told me that he wanted to have a grace church. I've shared this with you once before in a previous sermon, but it fits here as well. As he continued to talk, it became clear to me that he did not want a grace church, but just a church that ignored sin altogether. No confession, no repentance, no confrontation. He wanted a, since no one is perfect, we will tolerate just about anything church. Not a grace church. 
brothers and sisters, that's not grace. God's, God's grace does not give us permission to sin. It gives us deliverance from sin's penalty and its power. And that produces not a desire to sin willy-nilly, but an overwhelming gratitude for God and His grace. Be on guard, Jude says, for people who keep on turning the undeserved gift of God's forgiveness into permission to sin, into licentiousness. Watch out for that. To turn here means to make an exchange of one thing for another. Some of you have gotten a Christmas gift. wasn't what you exactly wanted. You took it to Walmart to see if you could get a credit. And the reason you went to Walmart is they'll actually give you a cash credit, whereas Target, they'll just give you a gift card, and you have to shop at Target. So you went to Walmart to make your exchange. Well, these, these intruders are making the craziest exchange ever. God's grace in exchange for sin. I'll do what I want. And the word is licentiousness, which has an undertone, usually in scriptures, of some kind of sexual sin. Now, it must not have been that blatant of sexual sin, because otherwise, it seems like the church would have recognized it. However, in 1 Corinthians, they fail to recognize it as well, so maybe not. But they're exchanging sinfulness and licentiousness, and, well, you can't tell me what to do. I've got my faith with my God, and you just leave me alone. It's, it's about me. Jude says, contend for the faith by being on guard against such silliness. For the intruders, faith is about justifying themselves rather than glorifying Jesus through whom we find justification. They say they are free, but they misunderstand freedom. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what we want, but the power to do what we should. Now look at the last part of verse 4. When they turn God's grace into an excuse to do what they want, they deny that Jesus is Master and Lord. Oh, they might say it. But you see, the confession of our mouths is not enough. It's not enough just to say Jesus is Lord. We've got to believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. And if we really believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then it's going to manifest in our lives. The intruders deny that Jesus is Master and Ruler and Lord. How? Not, not by failing a theology exam, but by how they are living. They think that they can take Jesus as a Savior, but not follow Him as Lord. Which Jude wants us to know is utter foolishness. As Aiken writes, by their sinful life and exploitation of grace, they deny Christ's Lordship in and over their lives. They are a law unto themselves accountable to no one, including the sovereign Lord Christ. You say, well, Pastor, I, I get it. I, we want to contend for the faith, but how do we also be welcoming to all? Here's the difference. Practically, what this means is that we should want to be filled every single week to the brim, pack a pew with people who don't believe a thing that we believe yet. They're just here to kick the tires and find out if this faith might be for them. That's a great thing. We want all kinds of people here. We want addicts and cheats and gluttons and fornicators and on and on and on. All kind, whatever you can list that, that is sinful and heinous in the eyes of a holy God, we want those people here. Because the only thing that will save them is the faith. 
On the other hand, when they then walk an aisle or pray a prayer or God gets a hold of their life on a Tuesday night and they call the pastor and say, I can't explain it, but God's changed my life. We then do some work to make sure that they know who this God is and know what it is they believe before we say, hey, here's, here's Billy Joe. He's the new member of North Roanoke Baptist Church. So membership and attendance are two very different things. We want all kinds of people to attend North Roanoke Baptist Church. We want people we disagree with, people who are lost, people who are far from God, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, whatever. Anybody who wants to kick the tires and find out about the faith, come on to North Roanoke Baptist Church. We want to show it to you, and we want to preach it to you. And we show it to you by prizing our membership and recognizing that those who are members of North Roanoke Baptist Church must be those who are of the faith. They need to know it doctrinally, and they need to display it in their lives. That's why church membership is so important. By joining a church, you're saying, I want to be a part of the visible display of the glory of God among the nations. That's why you don't just come, trust Jesus, and sit in a pew and hang out for your whole life and never join the church. you got to get plugged in so that you're in the formal network of God's accountability in the way that He designed it so that we can spur one another on in loving good deeds and sanctification until the day of Christ Jesus. So North Roanoke Baptist Church, may God lead us to be ever faithful to Him as we contend for the faith by being ever mindful of our lives and our responsibility to be Christ's church. A church that lives for the praise and the glory of Christ our King. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we ask that you would send us people who are far from God people who are confused, people that the world has gotten a hold of by the lies that the world continues to whisper. And God, we pray that you would make us a community of faith, a community of saints who guard the deposit of the faith that you have given to us, God, and that we do it well. We guard it by knowing what you have said, by believing what you have said, and then living out the life-changing gospel in our lives through the indwelling presence and power and fullness of your Holy Spirit. God, I, I want to pray right now for, for the one who's here today, who outwardly has checked all the right boxes, but inwardly they know they are far from God. God, would you draw even one today to yourself who needs to surrender their lives to you? Who needs to know that in Christ and in Christ alone, they find salvation. God, I pray you would draw them today. In Jesus' name, amen.